a state-run program of targeted assassinations morally defensible? And does it work? Ronan Bergman will be here to talk about his new book, Rise and Kill First. Would a guaranteed income for all Americans solve the problem of inequality? Felix Salmon will join us to talk about Fair Shot, the new book by Chris Hughes. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Hamburg is Ronan Bergman, author of Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Ronan, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, Pamela. So um, tell us about the book that you set out to write and, and how it evolved over time. Well, back in uh, early 2010, following a botched operation of Mossad, of the Mossad assassination attempt in Dubai, uh, Random House asked me to write something about Israeli intelligence. And I was thinking of writing the history of the extensive use of Israeli intelligence agency with the weapon of targeted assassinations. Um, and it evolved in time to be the history of Israeli intelligence. Um, I promised Random House I'm going to deliver the manuscript in early 2012, mm-hmm. and, it, and it was published in 30th of January 2018. So uh, one of the reasons it took so long was that I decided to disregard everything that was published on the topic and start from scratch. I thought that the that there are, there were difficulties with the things that were published. They were not referenced, and people were not quoted on the record. And it ended up with a very very long journey, which was very long. But I don't regret a, a moment of that. I really enjoyed that. Of eight years, one thousand interviewees, many 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 classified documents that were never published. And the result, I hope, is getting the facts right, but also giving a broader perspective of First, how Israeli intelligence works, but also other questions of morality, legality, policy, decision-making process. You've, you threw out a couple of terms at the beginning, and I want to just go through them because I think um, people who don't live in Israel or don't necessarily follow Israeli politics uh, carefully know the difference between Mossad, Shin Bet, IDF, Cesaria. Tell us exactly what they are. All of these are just different parts of the, the, the huge apparatus of Israeli defense establishment, military apparatus, and intelligence community. And as unlike as in many other countries, in, in Israel, they work uh, relatively in harmony and together. The Israeli intelligence agency is mainly built from three agencies. The Mossad, which is the, uh, the direct translation from Hebrew of the institution. The full name is the Institution for Intelligence and Special Operation. This is the Foreign Intelligence Service of Israel, works overseas. The Shin Bet, the Israeli General Security Agency, which works inside Israel, is something along the line of a combination between the FBI and the British MI5, mm-hmm. where the Mossad is like the CIA or the MI6. And the third one, by the biggest in number, belongs to the military. It's called Amman. This is the Military Intelligence Directorate, and that works on military issues. Now, all three of them, and again, unlike in uh, other countries in the West, they have both capabilities of collecting intelligence, but also operation, operating in, on, on, on their tasks. 
So it's not just the, the, the accumulation and understanding what the adversary, whether it's an enemy country or an organization or a terrorist entity, but also work way beyond enemy line in order to target pinpoint installations or people and destroy them. You mentioned the IDF. IDF was called the Israeli Defense Forces. And Kesaya or Caesarea is one uh, city in the north of Israel, but this is also the code name of the Special Operation Division of the Mossad. So this is just one very big unit belong to the Mossad. The IDF and military intelligence, which is part of the IDF, are under the Ministry of Defense, while the Mossad and the Shin Bet are civilian intelligence agencies, and they are under the direct and secret control of the Israeli Prime Minister. How open is Israel about its targeted assassination program? Well, as in many things in Israel, on the institutional level, it is highly secretive. And uh, Israel has not taken official responsibility for many, many of the operations, though its adversaries clearly know who was behind them. Mm-hmm. On a more personal level, as you know, everyone who reads Rise and Kill First, these people talk. Yes. Uh, and they speak about that, uh, many of them on the record. And so I would say that individually, people do, do talk. And as uh, once... Uh, uh, Bob Burgos quoted one of the chiefs of the CIA, people in many cases say more than you expect them to say. You spoke to six Israeli prime ministers for the book. Was it difficult to get them to directly address the issue of targeted assassinations? Yes, but not more than, than the others. It depends on the case. Netanyahu was involved as a prime minister, was involved in the botched operation in uh, Jordan in mm-hmm. uh, September of uh, 1997. And when he spoke with me, he had made an effort to explain why he was okay and the blame was on the operatives of the Mossad. These operations, all the targeted killing operations, and we're talking about thousands of them during the 70 years of the existence of the state, uh, all had to go through the prime minister at the relevant time. The only one who is authorized to okay a kill in Israel uh, is the prime minister. They even have a special code name for coming to the Prime Minister to authorize it. It's called negative treatment. And these forms are very unique to Israel because uh, the chief of that, the relevant intelligence agencies go to speak with the Prime Minister to authorize it, and usually to the private house of the Prime Minister in Balfour Street. But he brings with him the intelligence officer, the people who knows the, the de- who know the details. Some of them are under the age of 30. Some of them are under the age of 25, very, very young. And now through history... These people who came as young intelligence officers or Mossad operatives to convince the prime minister to okay a kill, this is a very dramatic moment, cross the room and become the prime minister. So Ishak Shamir was the chief of the Mossad assassination team and later become the, became the prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu was part of the Sayeret Matkal elite commando unit who participated in, in many of the operations. El Barak, Moshe Yalon, who was Israeli Minister of Defense and participated and commanded targeted killing. And if you look on a, a, a little more broader perspective, you need to think, what does the fact that these people actually took part in mm-hmm. these operations? That's to their mindset when they become the prime minister and they need to take also other tools like diplomacy, statementship, actual discourse with the, with the enemy. Does it help? Does it not? I'm not sure that the 
outcome and the, the, the influence is, is extremely positive. Have targeted assassinations been part of Israel's sort of policy from the very beginning? Yes, because the policy of Israel from the very beginning was that it needs to do whatever it can to prolong the time between all-out war and the next one. Israel cannot sustain long all-out wars. It cannot have all the, the, the military recruit on the borders. So Israeli leaders, the, especially David Ben-Gurion, the most important Jew in the last 1,000 years at least, they wanted to have a very strong intelligence agency, agencies that would bring a sufficient alert of a preemptive strike from the adversary, but also be able to uh, conduct pinpoint operations way beyond enemy lines in order to delay and even maybe prevent the next war. And at the peak of that were targeted killings and assassinations. Do they work? That's the most important question. And the other one is, are they legally and morally justified? Do they work? I think that the conclusion of rise and kill first after these long but enjoyable eight years of research is that when targeted killings and assassinations are done as part of an overall policy, when they are conducted on a tactical level and as an, 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 in a systematic pace, and not just as a one-time in order to show that we are doing something and in order to satisfy your local voters, then yes, it, sometimes they work. And if I can bring just one example, Hamas, the jihadist radical organization, launched a, a horrific wave of suicide killings inside Israel in 2001. And the only thing that was able to stop that was that Israel conducted the most extensive series of targeted killing, not against the suicide bombers. Hamas boasted that they have more volunteers than suicide belts. Uh, you cannot deter someone who wants to die with uh, threatening him to, to kill him. But, but once they started to target the, the lair Above these, the, the bomb makers, the indoctrinators, the recruiters, the, the logistics managers, Hamas realized that if they continue, then they risk their own existence. And I would say on their knees, they begged for a ceasefire in 2004, and they stopped sending suicide bombers. Let's get to the second question then, also very important about whether they are legally and morally justifiable, and maybe deal with that separately. So let's talk about legally first. The laws of war has, has changed. Since Israel has uh, published its manual for, its legal manual for targeted killing, and much of it was adopted by the United States intelligence community when it started to conduct extensive targeted killing after 9-11, then I, th I think that there is a consensus between most of the experts dealing with international law today that targeted killing are permittable as long as they are directed only against the target, meaning collateral damage is not permitted. But to kill a terrorist, even if he goes home and sleep in his bed at night, something that you can't do against a soldier in a regular war, but a terrorist, or as he called, as he's called by international law, non-legal combatant, can be killed. Of course, collateral damage makes things by far more complicated and severe. And of course, in, the, in times of war, that finger on the trigger of targeted killing, when you know that the, that the target is going to kill women and children tomorrow morning when sending suicide perpetrators, 
this is a diabolic question. Uh, are you going to risk the life of innocent people at the other side when you want to save your people or you don't? Uh, very difficult choice. Well, I, one last question that I have to ask since you are uh, joining us from Hamburg and there has been so much anti-Zionist or anti-Israel and as well as anti-Semitic sentiment and action in Europe recently. What is it like being there talking about this book and what's the reaction there like? I think that, that Germany, of course, regarding the past, has been extremely friendly towards Israel and towards Israelis. And just uh, just come from the Berlin, uh, which is full with Israelis, and is one of the most popular uh, cities for tourism for for Israelis. So Germany, in that sense, is different. The reactions, however, are uh, it was a I was fortunate it was a bestseller of the Spiegel bestselling list, etc. But there is also criticism in in Germany because of the past. The use of targeted killing is by far something that is illegal and the most impolitically correct thing that you can that you can think of. And in discussions here, while of course agreeing with some of the criticism, I'm also trying to explain to my local friends and colleagues and, and audience that Israel is a liberal democracy at the heart of the Middle East, facing extreme threats and therefore using extreme measures to protect itself. And just now in a discussion, one of them said, well, Germany also has enemies. Okay, yes, but still, I don't think that the, the, that the enemies of Germany publicly calls for the cessation of the existence of Germany as a state, while the enemies of Israel do. So there is a difference, and I'm trying to explain that the difference. While, you know, regrettably, I agree with some of their criticism toward the country, toward its policy. There is one thing I think should be should be said, that the main problem with the use of targeted killing, I think, except for the collateral damage, which is, which is uh, a great, great difficulty, and of course, while meeting the families of those people who was, were in the, the, the wrong place at the wrong time, I feel nothing but, but sadness and agony. But besides that, I think that the that the the story of Israeli intelligence is a story of success, which has at the end of that also a problem evolving from that that success, because Israeli intelligence is arguably the best intelligence community in the world. Sooner or later, the Mossad, the military intelligence, Amman, and the Shin Bet came with solution to any problem and any challenge that the political level have presented to them. But this was a tactical, on a tactical level. I think it, it led Israeli leaders into the wrong conclusion. They felt that at the tip of their fingers, they have the ability not just to kill a person in order to prevent the next day's suicide bomber, and not just to kill a, an Iranian nuclear scientist in order to hold or delay the Iranian advancement towards the A-bomb, but also to order the pinpoint targeted killing in order to stop history. And if you believe that you have the force, the ability, that unique capability of intelligence and operation to stop history, then as a politician, you don't need to turn into something that is by far more risky and more complicated, like statementship, like diplomacy. Therefore, I think that the story, if there is a story weaved through the book, except for the, you know, the operations and the... the, the uh, the intelligence and the spy and, you know, James Bond, the real stuff. It's a story about 
a fabulous series of tactical successes, but also as a, a story of a very dangerous political strategic failure. All right. We'll end it there. Ronan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ronan Bergman is the author of the best-selling book, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Felix Salmon joins us now. He reviews a new book by Chris Hughes called Fair Shot, Rethinking Inequality and How We Learn. Felix, thanks for being here. Pleasure. All right. Let's start with, for those who don't know, it's a a little bit of a generic name, Chris Hughes. Who is Chris Hughes? Chris Hughes was the co-founder of Facebook. He was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard. And then he was one of the first three or four people to sign on to this new social network, which wound up taking over the planet. He was known as the empath. He was the non-techie co-founder. He was like the communications guy. Okay, I was going to ask, like, what did he do? And how long was he with Facebook? He was only with Facebook for about three years. He kind of disappeared off to work on Barack Obama's presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. But that was enough that he became a billionaire, basically. All right. So now he's probably starting to sound familiar to listeners who may not have immediately recognized his name. He's also famous, especially in the media world, for one of his next endeavors, which was... Which was after he left Facebook, he wound up buying the New Republic from Marty Peretz. He had grand ambitions for this storied literary magazine and political magazine, which mostly failed to come to fruition. And then in a fit of sort of piquant frustration, he sold it very rapidly. And a lot of people who worked there and a lot of readers of the New Republic were quite upset at the way that he ran the magazine and then sold it. So listeners of the podcast may remember Frank Foer, who was on the podcast last fall for his book, World Without Mine, also wrote about this episode from the perspective of the then editor-in-chief of the magazine. Who Chris Hughes fired. Yes. Okay, so Chris Hughes then sells The New Republic, and, and then this is his next project, writing this book? Right. As he's working at the New Republic, he's also getting interested in philanthropy in a way that, you know, young billionaires tend to do. He takes a couple of trips to Kenya, first with Jeff Sachs, who's an economist at Columbia, to look at this thing called the Millennium Villages Project. He's less than impressed with that. But then he goes back with this guy called Michael Fay, who runs a charity called Give Directly. And what Michael does is he just gives money directly to the very poorest of the poor people earning less than a dollar a day. And that turns out to be incredibly effective. And so Chris then wonders, starts to wonder whether the same principle could apply to the poor in the United States. And he starts up this institution called the Economic Security Project and writes this book, which is basically a policy proposal saying, why don't we do something along the lines of, but not exactly the same as a universal basic income in the United States? Okay, so what is Chris Hughes' proposal? And and how does it differ exactly from universal basic income and, and other similar programs and policy ideas? So universal basic income is very simple. It what it says on the tin, you give every single person in the country $1,000 a month or 
however much you, you you know pick your number and then everyone gets it whether you are unemployed or whether you're bill gates and is this the policy anywhere in the world nowhere has this policy but i guess one place comes close which is alaska alaska sends the same dividend every year to every single citizen it's not like uh it's not based on your income you can make nothing or you can make millions and you still get the same dividend check every year alaska of course has no income tax because it has so much oil revenue and it shares that oil revenue with its citizens every year how much does it give to each citizen i, I believe it's a it's normally low single digit thousands it changes from year to year but i'm going to say it's like three four five thousand dollars a year and has it worked in alaska you don't completely eradicate poverty by giving mm -hmm. someone three thousand dollars a year, but it does have an astonishingly effective residual effect. It brings certainly brings some people out of poverty. It allows them a little bit of time to find work when they need it. It gives them a cushion, especially in the winter, which can be brutal in Alaska, and it's become incredibly popular in Alaska. And generally, if you look at what's happened in Alaska and other places which have experimented with things like this, you find more people in work. It doesn't reduce the chances that you wind up getting a job. It actually increases those chances. People are healthier. They drink less. They smoke less. It has a bunch of trickle-down effects. So why hasn't everyone else done this? <laughs> well, it's very expensive. If, if you were to give every American $1,000 a month, say, that's hundreds of billions of dollars, which the obvious next question is, where on earth would you find that money? And it would also feel a bit weird. You know, it, there's something quite un-American about unrewarded income. And mm -hmm. there's also something a bit weird about giving money to billionaires. Isn't this what many people would consider some form of socialism? Oh, well, certainly. I would say that the people who are in favor of universal income tend to come from one of two areas. One is absolutely the socialist left who think that it's just a very fair way of distributing money. And it is. I mean, it's hard to come up with something fairer than just everyone gets exactly the same amount. The other side would be the Silicon Valley types. They mm -hmm. love it because they're convinced we're all going to be replaced by robots. And again, we'll all need the money. So there's this kind of, I guess, redistribution of income. What is Hughes proposing and how does it differ from that? So Hughes is proposing something a little bit more constrained. He's calling it guaranteed income, but it's not that guaranteed. For instance, if you're unemployed, you don't get it. He's only giving it to people who work and also people who are caregivers insofar as they're looking after people in their own family who are over the age of 70 or under the age of six. And he's also giving it to college students. So he's expanding the idea of what work means. You need to be working, but bringing up a toddler counts as working, going to university counts as working, various other things don't count as working. If you're unemployed, you don't get it. And importantly, if you live in a household where the household makes more than $50,000 a year, you also don't get it. Got it. And what he wants to do is give all of those people, all of those adults, $6,000 a year. And where does the money come from? The revenue side of Hughes' proposal is a little bit less fleshed out. But what he says he wants to do is raise the marginal income tax rate on incomes over $250,000 a year to 50% and also raise the capital gains tax rate on those people to 50%. He hasn't really costed it out, but 
that would raise a lot of money. Now, isn't this basically akin to what you could achieve with, say, a progressive tax reform? Progressive taxes would do the revenue-raising part of it. You would raise the amount of money on the amount you you would increase the amount of money that you get from people earning more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. The problem is the very poor people and and poor households don't pay much in the way of taxes already. So even if you reduce their taxes to zero, you don't really benefit those people that much. So what this does is it goes one step further and it says rather than just not taxing those households, we want to give them six thousand dollars a year per adult. So what do you think? Would this work? I think it would have a positive effect. There would be some weird artifacts surrounding the way that Hughes has designed it, and specifically the way that he's excluding the unemployed. And that seems weird to me, because you'd think those are the people who need it most. So that doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me. Also, as I mentioned in the review, there's this marriage penalty built into it, that if you are earning $30,000 a year, and you're dating someone who's also making $30,000 a year, you both get the $6,000 guaranteed income. If you get married and form a household, then your household is making $60,000 a year, and then you lose that $12,000 in combined income. So that's, I think, you know, for incentives, it's important not to create an incentive which reduces the incentive to get married. So similar thing with welfare. They have that same, that same problem. Well, you, you just don't want... you. Like family formation is is important. You want to basically encourage it as best you can. I think at the margin, it's a good idea. I don't think it's fully thought out. And I think that it's a bit weird that if you get the bug of the universal basic income, which is a bug a lot of people have, and a lot of books are being written about it. Annie Lowry has a book coming out in a couple of months. Annie Lowry is formerly of the New York Times, now of the... Atlantic. And she goes into quite wonky detail about about the idea. And I think what happens is if you constrain it in the way that Chris Hughes wants to constrain it, when you make it less universal, it becomes less of a sort of shining bright light on the hill and more of a sort of extreme fiscal policy proposal which has zero chance of getting through Congress and why do people... You know, what's the what's the point of that? Let's go back to the unemployed thing, because that seems odd. That's been kind of the the political mantra, you know, sort of attending to working families as opposed to, I guess, those who lie around doing nothing. But what is his argument? Because obviously they aren't necessarily lying around doing nothing. It's an incredibly good question. And I read the book very closely and I couldn't find an argument for why the unemployed should be excluded from this. He talks a lot about the nobility of work and that kind of thing, but there are people who, either through no fault of their own or even just call it through laziness, who wind up being unemployed. And you have to ask yourself, like, does that remove them from the population of people that society should care about? I don't think it does. In terms of the architecture of the plan, the way that Hughes builds this is by expanding the earned income tax credit. And the earned income tax credit was actually, I guess, kind of the first tiny little baby step towards this kind of scheme, right? Because it it was introduced precisely to provide extra income to the working poor. What is it for those who... So the earned income tax credit is basically something you get every year 
when you file your taxes, if you earn a relatively low amount of money, but you are earning money, then you get a tax refund, which is sometimes bigger than the total amount of tax that you owe. So you can wind up sort of making a profit on your taxes that way and winding up earning more money than you were paid because the government gives you a little bit extra. It was a huge success. And if you expand the earned income tax credit in any way, and it's been expanded in little ways over the years, that's generally a good thing. And if you expand it in a big way, as Chris Hughes wants to do, that would also be a good thing. But the more you expand it, the more you raise this question, which you you know ask of, why are we excluding people who aren't working? Why Chris Hughes? I mean, why is he the one to make this argument? He is you know, not involved in public policy. He's not in office. He's not an economist. So why did he decide to write this book? And, and, and why should people or shouldn't they pay attention? Another very good question. At one point, he explains that he sold the New Republic because he didn't have any political axe to grind. And then here we are, like a couple of years later, and he's grinding a political axe. But why do you need a political axe to grind to run a newspaper or a magazine of political and cultural news and opinion? When he bought the New Republic, and he doesn't mention this in the book, but his husband was running for Congress. And there was definitely this, definitely this feeling that it was all part of a grander project where they would move to Washington, his husband would be in Congress, he would be running this political magazine, and they'd be this kind of political power couple. His husband failed to win his seat in Congress, and it wasn't that much later that, that Hughes decided that this entire project just wasn't worth it, and he threw his toys out of the pram, and then he decided to write this book. And it all seems a little bit random to me, to be honest. I don't he he tries to tie it all together in the book to some extent. He's like, well, the reason why I'm only doing this guaranteed income and I'm doing this relatively modest expansion of the earned income tax credit rather than going for the universal basic income is something, something to New Republic. And it's not entirely convincing, to be honest. So your review of this book and your take on it is not entirely positive. Is it a problem of the messenger not being the right person for this message? Is it a problem with the message? Is it a combination of both? It is a combination of both. I, as you say, I am not entirely sure why Chris Hughes is the right person, is the right messenger beyond the obvious kind of, I'm rich and I think that I have too much money message, which often which we've heard from a few different people over the years. He's not the world's most natural policy wonk, although he does have this nonprofit now where he surrounded himself with policy wonks, and so there's a lot of footnotes. But ultimately, the only reason that anyone's talking about this proposal at all is that it's coming from a billionaire. And that if anyone else had woken up one morning and said, we should expand the earned income tax credit and not give money to unemployed people and do this and that, everyone would sort of look at them and smile and say, yeah, totally good, and move on. But instead, because it's Chris Hughes and because he has this history with Facebook and because he's put the words co-founder of Facebook on the front cover of the book and because he has enough money to be able to promote it on Facebook and in various other places to try and get a lot of copies sold, 
he's managed to just sort of buy his way into the national conversation. Right. It seems like there's a kind of inherent hypocrisy in saying, I got this money, this huge amount of money that sort of I didn't necessarily deserve to get. It shouldn't be this way. And yet, because I have this money, you should listen to what I have to say. Exactly. Yes. One final question. Let's say, though, that no matter who's putting forth this message, it seems like, as you said earlier, the idea in general of some kind of guaranteed basic income seems to be a good one. Does it have any chance of being enacted in this country? Every single time I've said that that, that anything has no chance of happening politically, whether it's been from Brexit to Trump to anything else, it has gone ahead and happened. So, like, I have learned my lesson. And All right, and universal basic income for all, coming soon. Crazy, <laughs> crazier things have happened probably in the last 24 hours, you know? So it's, it's hard for me to see where the congressional majority comes from. Mm-hmm. But who knows? There could easily be some kind of Trump backlash and an idea that you want to just totally upend decades worth of fiscal policy. And this would be one way of doing that. All right, then, Felix, thanks for being here. Thank you. Felix Salmon reviews Fair Shot, Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn by Chris Hughes this week in the book review. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So what is going on? So there was an interesting announcement this week from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew, which is one of the country's top literary publishing houses. They are bringing in a new publisher, Mitzi Angel, who is currently the publisher of Faber and Faber in London. And it's interesting to see Jonathan Galassi kind of passing the torch. He's obviously one of the most respected editors in the business and has been around for a long time. How long has he been the publisher? He has been the publisher of FSG for nearly 20 years. And he took over directly from Roger Strauss, the founder of the company. Wow. So there's only been two publishers? Yes, two publishers. I mean, this is one of the interesting things about this company. Even though it's part of a larger corporation, it's part of Macmillan, It really has kind of an independent streak, and the books they publish and their whole business operation has been very closely aligned with kind of the the publisher himself, in this case, Galassi and previously Strauss. Um, And so, you know, Galassi is one of those kind of old-school publishers who really still edits. He likes working with writers. He's worked with Jeffrey Eugenides, Jonathan Franzen. Marilyn Robinson, I mean, really incredible, you know, some of the most respected and celebrated authors at work today. So He's also a poet himself. And he's himself a poet and, and a novelist. He wrote this uh, recently. He published his debut novel, which is kind of a satire of the publishing industry. So, it, I, you know, I spoke to him yesterday about the decision, and he'll still be president of the company. He'll be closely involved in what they're doing. But he's really handing over the reins to Mitzi Angel to direct their publishing operation and their marketing operation. And he said he felt like in order to keep the company's character and, and survive and continue what they're doing, it was time for a generational change. So FSG is part of... Macmillan, which is part of Holtzbrink, correct? That's right, yeah. so who picks the next publisher? Is it Jonathan Glossy himself? 
I would imagine he had a, a strong hand in it. And Mitzi Angel used to work at FSG. She was there for seven years before she went to Faber. And so I think she is very much steeped in the company's sensibility. When she was at FSG, she was the editor for some really incredible novels. She worked with Rachel Cusk, Ben Lerner, Dolan Antrim. And what Jonathan Glossy told me he really appreciated about her was that she has an independent sensibility and that he thinks she's going to be finding kind of these cutting-edge next generation breakout novelists. And that's what he feels like the company really needs right now. Is that what the publisher generally does in most houses, sort of looking for talent? Or are they sort of more managing and running the shop? My sense is that FSG is somewhat unusual and that the publisher is very closely curating the titles, or at least Jonathan Galassi has been. And he will continue, he said, to acquire and hand edit some books still. I think in other at other houses, the publisher is, is kind of overseeing the business operation, mm-hmm. and they might sign off on big acquisitions and weigh in on big marketing plans, but they're probably not as closely involved in the editorial process as they are at FSG. Was this anticipated? Did people think, oh, Galassi's going to retire, or is this kind of a shock? I mean, yeah. he's not retiring, yes, obviously. He's still president. I was somewhat surprised to hear the news, to be honest. He seems He's always seemed to be very engaged and excited still. Of course, I think he's doing a lot more writing now than he was before, perhaps, and and putting more into that. And, you know, he's 68 years old, so he really did talk about sort of a generational shift at the company. So recently, we've also seen two new publishers rise to the top of their organizations, Jonathan Burnham at HarperCollins coming to the top position after having been the publisher of Harper and then Jonathan Karp recently ascending right. to the top of Simon & Schuster. So it kind of feels like this, I don't know, like a, a, a generational shift is yes, happening. Yes, I think uh, it's a moment when publishing companies are looking, you know, to bring in the next generation of leaders and new ideas if they can. But they're also choosing from their ranks and looking for people that understand the sensibility of the companies who have been sort of involved there. So I'll be very curious to see what Mitzi Angel ends up choosing what authors she acquires. She said she's really looking for younger emerging writers, and she's had an eye for that for a while. And it'll be interesting to see, too, how she kind of positions the company at this time when the industry is really changing quite a bit and quite rapidly. I mean, they've we've been through the ebook wave. There's a massive audiobook wave happening right now. And FSG, although it's, you know, I think its reputation is this kind of old school high-quality literary fiction, poetry, serious nonfiction type of publisher. They have been pretty experimental in recent years. Mm -hmm. They've launched a couple of new imprints. One is FSG Originals, and they did a lot of digital first projects, including one interactive app that was a— published as both as a hardcover and as an interactive digital app. More recently, they launched an imprint, MCD FSG, which is run by Sean McDonald, and that's kind of this laboratory for boundary-pushing fiction. So they are trying new things, and they're trying to reach younger readers and reach people on their cell phones. And it'll be interesting to see how Mitzi Angel kind of ties that into the company's overall mission. All right. Well, congratulations to Mitzi. Thanks, Alexander. Thanks, Pamela. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey. Hey, All right. Let's start with the most pretentious, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say it because I can see what he's got in front of him. I, I am finally reading a book that I have resisted for decades. Uh, I'm reading James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, yes, very pretentious. Um, the interesting thing about reading a classic for the first time is that you – 
come to it with such a kind of filament of gleanings, um, all the information that has seeped out into the culture at large over the years. So um, maybe especially with Ulysses, because first of all, of course, the book itself is already drawing on another classic. So you bring everything that you know about the Odyssey to it. And second of all, because Ulysses is just so inescapable in the literary world. So even before you crack the cover, you know that it's set on a single day in Dublin and you know that it's narrated in a chorus of different streams of consciousness and some of them very difficult and oblique. And, and you know that the story centers on an infidelity and ends with Molly Bloom's famous soliloquy. And that's all before you've even read a word of it. So I brought it with me on vacation a couple of weeks ago um, and kind of heedlessly tore through the first hundred pages, which open with Stephen Dedalus. He's also the protagonist of Joyce's debut novel, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So again, you're bringing those associations into your reading of this book. And then we move on to Leopold Bloom, who is Molly's husband, as he runs some errands and attends a funeral. And then I came back from vacation, and after reading 100 pages there, I think I'm on like 106 now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you had to reread the first one. <laughs> no, uh, Greg has come to the podcast this week to request more time off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've enjoyed what I've read so far. Some of it is very oblique and, and difficult. As Joyce does, it's filled with wordplay. And I'm used to books that kind of are, are so punny like that, being very exuberant books. But there's a real it, – it, mm. this is not an exuberant book. It's almost dour and somber. And it may become more exuberant later. But at the same time, you can feel that Joyce is himself having fun and – Leopold at, at least the, someone is. <laughs> <laughs> Leopold at the funeral comes out and he looks at the ground gravely, uh, <laughs> and then immediately after the carriage leaves on gravel. And so there's this, uh, you know, the, a real kind of physicality and and wordplay going on, which is what Joyce does. And so, so some of it you just have to muscle through, but I am doing that much more slowly now than I was. <laughs> well, we know what Greg will meditation. be talking about for the rest of the year on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is my new power broker. John, you're also reading a classic right now. I am reading a classic that I'll finish much more quickly than you finish <laughs> yours. I'm halfway done already. I actually I just wanted to very quickly say that I, because all year I will probably be reading in and around Henry James because that's kind of become a project. And I finished Michael Gore's The Portrait of a Novel, which I think is a really brilliant work of literary criticism. It also just, it's one of those books which is one of my favorite kinds, which is that when you finish it, you have about 15 other books you want to read because he either mentioned them or he talked about the writer and you had never read them. And then I read Daisy Miller, which is James's short book. It's almost just a, a novella, really, about um, a young girl who gets <laughs> courted by Winterborn, this man who finds her very innocent but charming, and everyone else thinks she's just a crass American. And I enjoyed that a lot. Now I'm on something very different, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's the 200th anniversary of the book. And so I got this nice new edition of it and figured that it would be a good time to read it. And it's it's funny because I, I'm about halfway through it and through the first 90 pages or so, I was just thinking, well, this is brilliant and it's this great sort of philosophical treatise on science and man and ambition. And, all. and then this might anger fans of the book, but I've kind of hit a little bit of a speed bump, which is that he has found the monster again or come across the monster again. And the monster is telling him about his time since he created him and what he's gone through. And, and the monster talks like an Oxford Don. <laughs> and this is, I just, I can't, there's something, maybe it's because I've. You want him to be Bella Lugosi. Yeah, I've just or, absorbed all the cultural things about him being this grunting, you know, kind of. And it's, he's more eloquent than <laughs> Shelley is. And it just, it, it, I'm having a little bit of a hard time adjusting to that, I have to be honest. But I'm going to power through that and get to the rest of it. It is a really great 
tale in the sense that it, it's like you're around a campfire. You really want to learn what happens next. And the voice of the it book is really interesting when you like right? when you come to a book with all of those pop culture references and and associations, and then the book itself is actually quite different. Yeah, and in the first third of the book, I kind of liked that disjointedness because. Unlike movies and cartoons and things about Frankenstein, the first third of the book is really just about natural philosophy. And, and it's the thriller tone of it comes from wondering what happened because there's this foreboding tone to the whole thing. But his actual interests, the scientist's interests and what he's talking about are, you know, very intellectual and kind of abstract. And but he has green skin, right? <laughs> no, well, he doesn't, at least in, in the initial description. He has kind of yellowish skin and, he, and, and beautiful teeth, but it's his lips that are weird. And I don't know, he, he doesn't fit the cartoon version of it. It says on the cover that it's the 1818 text. Yes. Well, you know, I sometimes do this, especially with classics. I don't read the sort of armature around it, like the forward and the afterward until after I'm done with the book. I think that it will explain to me why that's important. I think it has to do with the fact that it, the book is more sort of political than other people, other editions have made it. And so it's restored sort of some of her original. I, I want to say that Mary Shelley herself revised the book within her lifetime. And the second edition, which came out, I think, in the 1840s, is the one that mm. went on to become kind of canonical. But the 1818 is the original edition. And of course, it's the um, bicentennial year for that. And so there's been much attention right. paid to that. Tina, how about you? What are you reading this week? So I'm reading My Family and Other Animals, which is a, a memoir by the British naturalist Gerald Durrell. And I have to put it in context a little bit. About a year ago, I decided I needed to read funny. I needed to just to read books that made me laugh. And I, in the past year, I've read the novels of Barbara Pym. I most recently read a British YA novel called The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. I've gone on Twitter and asked people for their recommendations. And I actually highly recommend reading funny if you just want to get out of yourself a little bit. So this book... That's so interesting because I read dark to get out of myself. Really? <laughs> I do. I think I usually do, but there's something about the time that we're living in that... It is dark enough already. Yeah. <laughs> it's dark See, enough, when it's right? dark, I go darker. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. and now it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's an actual apocalypse, what will you read? <laughs> yeah, right. So... Gerald Durrell became a, a, a famous naturalist, and he was actually the younger brother of Lawrence Durrell, which I didn't realize when I started reading the book. Lawrence Durrell, of course, is the famous Alexandria Quartet novelist because he's referred to as Larry in the book. <laughs> but so the memoir, it, which was first published in 1956, looks back at the five years the Durrells lived on the island of Corfu in the 1930s with their widowed mother. And Gerald was by far the youngest. The, Larry's Larry Durrell is clearly <laughs> in his 20s, and there's two other siblings. And he's already obsessed with animals, with the fauna of the island, and collecting eels, which are swimming in the bathtub. There's spiders, whatever. He drives his family crazy. It It's so funny that I actually find myself laughing out loud on the train, which is... It's not yes. <laughs> and I actually, when I was looking this morning, I I found this quote from Lawrence Durrell after the book was published, and he said, this is a very wicked, very funny, and I'm afraid rather truthful book. The best argument I know for keeping 13-year-olds at boarding school and not letting them hang around the house listening in on adult conversations. <laughs> um, and there is a fair amount of that, I have to say. I also, when I started to do a little research this morning, discovered... 
published in 1956, and it's never gone out of print, which is kind of remarkable. And somebody told me that it's been made into an ITV or BBC production called The Durrells, which I guess was on last year, which totally passed me by. Wow. Still going strong. Still going. last year. So still going strong. But highly recommend just for a glimpse of like life in the 30s on this idyllic Greek island a life in a crazy family full of decidedly oddball characters. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of mischief, too, which it, is fun. It's a lot of mischief. It's just it's just a thoroughly delightful and charming book. So what incredibly dark thing are you reading, Pamela? You know, I'm I'm not reading anything too dark right now. Actually, I'm also reading a classic, which I've just started, so I won't talk about it too much until our next episode. But since you mentioned like not reading the architecture around the classics, mm. I'm similar. I mean, I used to very diligently, sort of in a kind of collegiate mode, feel like I needed to read the entire book from yeah. beginning to end. But in the recent classic that I picked up, which is Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone, I was very grateful at the beginning of the introduction, there was a note that said, this contains plot spoilers, <laughs> which, you know, they never do. Why don't yeah, they do yeah, that more often? Because that's what really stopped me from from reading those things. But to make those who are not reading classics feel a little bit better, I will confess that what I just finished was a celebrity memoir. But it's a very un-celebrity-like celebrity memoir, Alan Cummings' memoir, Not My Father's Son, which has, you know, a little bit of hint of glamour here and there, because he is Alan Cumming. And I am a super fan of, especially his, of course, his appearance in cabaret, but also his actual cabaret singing. Um, I've seen him perform uh, here in New York, and I'm actually seeing him this summer up in the Berkshires. So I was curious to read this book, um, which my cousin had just finished. And when he was approached by an agent to write a memoir, he said that he didn't want to write a typical, you know, this is how I became so famous and glamorous kind of thing, um, but instead wanted to write about his family. So he starts it off with the fact that he was scheduled to go on this BBC program called, I think, Who Do You Think You Are? Um, one of these geneal- mm-hmm. genealogy shows. And what he was trying to find out was more about his maternal grandfather who had died when his mother was quite young. And they knew that he had been in the war, but didn't really know that much else about him. And when he was about to go on this show, his father, from whom he was estranged for, I think, 16 years, reached out to his brother to give an important message to Alan Cumming um, that he had to talk to him before he went on this show. Hmm. And what his father tells him is, in the title of the book, that you are not my son, and as in he is actually not his biological father. And Alan had been really emotionally and physically abused by his father growing up. So this was Hmm. really shocking, but interesting, and in a way, exciting news that this person who'd been so terrible to him maybe wasn't related to him at all. Um, So it's kind of these twin narratives that are all tied to this TV show, this discovery of who his maternal grandfather was alongside his discovery that Seemingly, he is not his father's son and his efforts to figure out, well, then whose son is he and and, and why is he only finding this out now? Um, I think he's in his 40s at the time of the of the book. So that's what I just read. That's fascinating. It's a, a different side of Alan Cumming. And, and there definitely is. a different and kind and of a little bit dark, memoir. too. Yeah. It, <laughs> yes, it was dark enough. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. 
Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 